let me just dive right into today's message. As you, as you know, um, we're kind of going through what are our foundational beliefs at Redemption Hill Church. Um, so la- last two weeks, I spoke on the gospel and the importance of the gospel. Last week, talked about the importance of discipleship and mission. What does that look like here? And this morning, I'm going to talk about why we are reformed. Um, if you're around Sovereign Grace Circles, that word gets used a lot, and I'm even going to be even more specific. We're reformed in our soteriology. I hope you don't get hung up on kind of the language. Soteriology just basically means how we're saved, and so um, we're just going to be talking about that this morning, and so uh, let, let me begin by sharing a little bit of church history. On October 31st, 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 to the Wittenberg Chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany, at the moment, Luther had no idea that he would become the leader of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was not just a few monks and a couple theology professors who were upset with the Roman Catholic Church. It was it was a movement to reform the church. The Roman Catholic Church rejected the reforms ushered in by Luther and others, but a new day was was dawning in the church. Changes were being made. Among the changes is that Luther began to place the Bible as the highest authority for knowing and hearing God. Like, so you ask the question, how do we know God? How do we hear God? Well, Luther began to say it's from the Scriptures. That had not been the case during Luther's time. Luther began to see that to know God means we need to know the Word of God, hence the Latin phrase common today amongst Bible scholars and theologians, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is how we know God. I tell you all of this because it is the Bible, God's Word, in which God reveals Himself to us. It is the Bible where we can affirm what we sing. Right? It is the Bible where here preached for me. Moreover, when I begin to talk about what it means to be saved and why this church is reformed in soteriology, the foundation of our belief, this particular theological category, is found in the Bible. So it should be no surprise that I want to draw our attention to the Bible, and in particular, Ephesians 1. So for the remainder of my time, I'm going to kind of place my anchor in the first half of this chapter and allow God's Word to shape our mind and heart, show us His loving plan to save elect sinners to Himself for His glory. One final thought before I read the text. The second half of Ephesians is a prayer, but the first half of Ephesians is actually Paul praising God for who he is. So as, as I read, may we praise God together. This is Paul was praising God between verses 3 and 14 of Ephesians 1. Now listen to these precious truths in God's Word. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption. We sang about that this morning. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. Last verse, last two verses. In Him, in Christ, you, you heard the word, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there, there are moments in life when you realize you can't accomplish everything that you want to accomplish in, a, in an allotted amount of time. Today's sermon is one of those moments. There, there's no way that I'm going to exhaust all that can be said from this particular passage, nor give an, exa- uh, an exhaustive explanation about why we were reformed in our soteriology. So I need to narrow my scope and I need to be selective about some verses that we can tease out and kind of examine, right? So I will not be addressing kind of the nuances which are discussed in a myriad of books and the blogosphere and, and seminaries and Bible schools, etc. However, with such an enormous topic and a rich passage, my goal is really simple. I just want the Bible to tell us about God and His sovereign plan over the universe and more specifically, over the salvation of a soul. Like, how are we saved? When I say we are reformed in our soteriology, what I mean is that salvation is by unmerited grace alone, through faith alone, and according to the good pleasure of God alone. God is sovereign over the salvation of a soul And a person is saved according to God's will, for God's purpose, and for the honor and glory of God's name. In other words, the salvation of a person is entirely dependent upon God's loving and gracious choice. You might refer to this as Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. The preferred language When you read Ephesians 1, you are confronted with the reality that this world and everything everything going on in your life is ultimately not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. We're confronted with that reality in Ephesians 1. Everything you observe in the world, everything printed in the Bible, each hard and joyful circumstance going on in your life is about God's will being done so that God's purposes are accomplished. A fundamental sin of humanity is that we make everything about ourselves. Instead of thinking theological, we think anthropological. 
We are man-centered, not God-centered. This is, this is important to see because when we read how a person is saved and why a person is saved, in our flesh, it's what? It's tempting to push back. It's tempting to, well, what about, what about me? What about my choice? Ephesians 1, if we can get, get into our head and heart, can rightly align our worldview. Ephesians 1 is going to help us see how our one God has worked before the foundation of the world to save a people to himself as his treasured possession. Ephesians 1 gives us a radical and profound theological and spiritual picture of how God sees the world and how he saves sinners who deserve hell. So here's how I want to approach Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14. I'm going to take my cue from this morning's call to worship. Remember, there are three persons in the one true and living God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal, power, and glory. And in today's passage, we read about how our one God is at work. God the Father elects. God the Son redeems the elect. God the Holy Spirit, through regeneration, helps us to apply the work of Christ. So to guide us through this Trinitarian golden chain of thoughts, from Paul. Here, here's a short outline right up there. Now let's kind of walk through this passage together with these headings as our guide. The beginning of verse 3 indicates the purpose of God the Father when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul details the purpose of God the Father to choose before the foundation of the world. Now, it is true that God formed every human being before the foundation of the world. Just read Psalm 139. He makes that, the psalmist makes that clear. So while God formed each person before the foundation of the world, not all people are chosen to be saved before the foundation of the world. The fact is this. No one deserves to be saved. No one deserves to be saved because of sin. You don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. And this butts up against our culture, right? This is, this is radical in our entitlement culture. We think we deserve whatever it is we desire or whatever it is we have worked for. Not true, and especially not true with God. Because of the fall, Genesis 3, every person deserves hell. Our sin is an affront against a holy God. Yet, it says in the Bible that God purposes to choose or elect some to salvation before the foundation of the world. So where do we come up with this language of election? Right? If, you've, if you've read books on Calvinism or heard um, messages preached on Reformed theology, you're going to run into this word election. The Greek word for choose, verse 3, is electos. So that's where we kind of get that language. Here's what it means for God to elect a person to salvation. I have heard the analogy that election is, the election of God is like you were drowning in an ocean, right? And God throws you a life preserver and reels you in. And I've heard that preached on it. And it, it, it's, it's a fine analogy, but I don't think it's strong enough. Our depravity in God's election is like standing in the middle of a house that is burning down and there's no way out. 
You're standing in the middle of the house, breathing in the smoke and feeling the intensity of the heat. But by God's grace and his choosing, he saves you from what you rightly deserve. Election refers to God's choosing whom to save. It is unconditional in that there is no condition man must meet before God chooses to save him. Man is dead in trespasses and sins. There is no condition he can meet before God chooses to save him from his deadness. A dead heart cannot make itself alive. Only someone external who has the power to give life can make a dead heart alive. When I, when I talk about God's electing purpose, I emphasize our sin and depravity and what we truly deserve to help us understand the power of God's grace to save undeserving sinners. This isn't in my notes, but just Parenthetical phrase, statement. In the church, we sing about grace. We hear about grace. Grace, 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 grace. In a lot of churches, you'll hear about the grace of God. But without the context of our sin and depravity, it's true grace. Saving grace does not make sense. So get this. Before the foundation of the world, God knew that Jesus Christ would need to die as a perfect sacrifice for the sin of his people. And he chose you, Christian, to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's stunning. Before Genesis 1 1, Psalm 139, God only knew that he was, you were formed, but he chose you to be his precious possession despite your sin. Paul continues to demonstrate God's sovereign grace to the elect in verses 5 and 6. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he us in the beloved. There, there are a few, few things I want to deal with in this verse. The um, first is that God predestined Verse 5, read why God chose to predestine some to be adopted into his spiritual family. The, the doctrine of uh, the theology of predestination is that God predetermines who will be in Christ, who will be a part of God's spiritual family through adoption. Adoption is entirely dependent upon the faith God gives. A person can't conjure up the faith to be saved. A person can't try harder. God predestines who will have faith. God does all the work here. You are a child of God 100% because of God's predestination and His choosing. If you only gave 1% in making a choice to be saved, then that means, that means, would be, that means you would be working toward your salvation, which is contrary to what the Bible says. Just turn the page to Ephesians 2. That's what you read. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, no means of your works. Christians need to realize that their faith and adoption rests completely on the work of God and not on the unsaved of anything in themselves. 
you know, people have asked me, you know, this question, how are you saved? You've gotten asked that question before. If you want to use the language from verse 5, how are you adopted into God's family, right? Well, I, I can tell you right now that my salvation had nothing to do with me. Again, we try to make everything about ourselves. It had nothing to do with me. I did everything I could to run away from God. I, I liked my sin too much. I was rebellious and I was running away. However, over time, began, God, it's just weird, God began to put people in front of me who started telling me about Jesus. I didn't, I didn't ask for these people to all of a sudden cross my path. I'm like, you're, you're a Christian? What do you believe? And just explain the gospel. I'm like, I remember one time in my early 20s, I'm like, why are all these people who don't know each other telling me about Jesus? It, what was going on is that God the Holy Spirit began to woo me to God. And then one day, October, I remember, part of my testimony, October 2003, it was like God said, now's the time. You're mine. So God put me on my knees. God put me in tears. God moved upon my heart. God, God forced me to surrender. And in the process, I began to see my sin as an egregious offense against the Holy God. At the same time, I saw the abundance of his grace to save a rebellious sinner. I began to see that in God's mercy, the punishment I deserved was withheld and put upon Jesus at the cross. And I received the love which brought me into God's family as an adopted son. Look, I, I have no amazing gifts or talents, right? Uh, I was an average, a below-average student, below-average athlete, probably still makes me a below-average dude. You know, Asheree, she'll tell you. She'll be gracious, but she'll tell you. Below-average guy. So why did God save me? Why? The end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6 gives us the answer. According to the purposes of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. I was saved according to God's purposes and for God's glory. And it's in verse 11, God made known to me the mystery of his will, the gospel. Why? Again, according to his purpose. This is why I said earlier that we need to stop being man-centered in our understanding of the world and instead be God-centered. We need to come to terms with the fact that God's purposes are at work, not ours. And it's God's purposes that are ultimately at work to save you and sustain you. Are you going through a hard time? God is at work to bring about his purposes in your life. There's a difficult relationship in your life, right? God is at work to bring about his purposes in your life. God's purposes are at work for your good, absolutely, and for the honor and glory of his name. Reflect with me on the story of Joseph, right? Genesis, book of Genesis, Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob. Joseph was given like the multicolored coat, which was like the end thing for the day where everyone was jealous, including his brothers, right? Favorite son. And then all of his brothers began to resent him. And then Joseph had a dream that one day his entire family would be subservient to him. The dream put the brothers over the edge. So 
they almost killed him and then they would have killed him if it wasn't for one of the brothers kind of intervening. Instead, they thought it was a good idea instead to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. At one point in Egypt, Joseph was unjustly put into prison. Very short, in Egypt, through providential acts of God, Joseph eventually became second in charge to Pharaoh. But at every step of the way, God was at work in the life of Joseph. Then at the end of the book of Genesis, we realize that all of that had happened had nothing to do ultimately with Joseph. But it was about the purposes of God. At the end of the book of Genesis, years being years away from his family, and, but due to a famine in God's providence, Joseph's family is forced to go to Egypt and search for food. And who do they find? Joseph. We read this in Genesis 50. Listen, this is amazing. His brothers, Joseph's brothers, also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here's the purpose, to bring about to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God was at work. God's purposes were being accomplished. When Joseph was being persecuted, God was at work. When Joseph was second in command of Pharaoh, God was at work. And what do we read in Ephesians? Is that when God saves, it is for his purposes, according to his will, for the honor and glory of his name. God is at work. So God's purposes are ultimately why why we are saved. That second category, the son's mission, verses 7 to 12. So Christian, how did it come to be that God's purposes would be at work in you because of the mission of the son? Here's a little bit of what these verses say. Verse 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now go to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So I'm skipping over so much. But see that the mission of the Son is to redeem through his death on the cross. Jesus spilled his blood so that you could be justified and receive the righteousness of Christ. Here's a very helpful passage from Romans 8. And those whom he predestined, language from today, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's stunning that you, Christian, have been, have been chosen by God, that his hand has been set upon you so that you could be the beneficiary of God's grace, his love, and inheritance. Verse 11. All of that in Christ. Jesus died on the cross. The grace of God was unleashed for his elect people. Christians should be the happiest and most joyful people in the world because of what God has done through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, the Son was on mission to suffer and die for his people. Oh, what love. Oh, what grace. Oh, what mercy. One final point. Uh, in trying to explain why we are reformed in our soteriology. Once God saves, a person is preserved by God until the end. And 
by the end, I mean until Jesus comes back or a Christian dies and goes to be with Jesus. Here's what we read in verses 13 and 14. This is my last point of the sermon. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. When you are chosen and predestined for adoption through faith in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. So there are two stresses in what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. First, the blessings we read about in Ephesians 1 are for those who are chosen by God are spiritual realities, not material. Which, by the way, flies in the face of prosperity gospel, right? We're talking about spiritual realities, not material realities. The entire chapter of Ephesians 1 is about the spiritual realities of those who are in Christ. Second, to be sealed by God is to be marked by God as his precious possession. Once God has set his loving affection on you by unveiling to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, a mark has been placed upon you. God says, you are mine. And when God says, you are mine, he promises to keep you until the end. Once saved, always persevering. Once saved, always preserved. Once saved, always following. You guys know, if you read Ephesians 1, we could be talking about Ephesians 1 all day. I could, we could preach for another hour on the beauty of Ephesians 1, God's kindness and goodness of Ephesians 1. But I hope you see, at the very least, in part, why we are reformed. God saves his elect people through Jesus Christ for his good and glory. And just as we saw, when God takes possession of a person, he doesn't let go. The Holy Spirit is a permanent seal for God's elect people. And there is a ton of joy that we can have in God because he keeps us. Life's hard, but he keeps us. We doubt, but he keeps us. Loved ones die. We question, but he keeps us. Friends make life hard. We question, but he keeps us. That is the goodness of God. That is the power of his grace. That is the hold he has on our life. Let's pray and let's move into communion.